Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, my special guest today is Paul Tremblay, uh, who most of you will probably know as the author of Head Full of Ghosts, Heaven at the End of the World, and of course Survivor Song, and Disappearance at Devil's Rock. Is that the yes. Yeah, yes. I got it right. You had it. <laughs> that's the one I have not read. I have Oh, okay. So that's why I, I got it wrong. Uh, I'm David Agronoff. I'm the author of Goddamn Killing Machines and Punk Rock Ghost Story, because uh, I, I know less of you will know who I am. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're going to assume that you read this book, Survivor Song, and today is going to be a discussion about the writing process of the book. So if you haven't read it, go read it, come back. It's 300 pages. It's a real breezy read. Uh, well, it's an interesting <laughs> read, but it's short, uh, which is one of the things I want to talk about because um, these are typically books that are doorstops, these pandemic books um, and these like kind of end of the world things. And uh, at 300 pages, this is, is really short. At any point, did you consider or think about doing a longer piece with Survivor Song? Uh, no, no, right from the beginning. Well, one, like I, I can't write long books. <laughs> it's just, it's not in my DNA. Um, no, but, but right away, one of the, there were two, like once I knew I was going to be doing sort of a zombie riff or a zombie adjacent sort of thing, depending on your viewpoint. Um, I knew one that I didn't want to do like the sprawling cast of thousand characters, you know, super long you know, zombie book and not because they're bad, but there've been so many that have been, you know, so well done. It's like, I, I wanted to do something different. I really liked, I was drawn to the idea of, of, you know, with the exception of, with the exception of maybe the interlude, the postlude, or uh, sorry, the prelude, interlude, postlude, you know, it, it takes place over four to six hours. Like I really was drawn to that compressed timeline. Um, and, and the second thing, since I, just, I said there were two things was, you know, I also, I didn't want it to be like a, a loving, almost like fetishistic description of the end of the world. Like at some point in the book, I don't, I don't feel like this is a spoiler. I tell the reader that, well, we're talking spoilers anyway. Yes. Yeah. You know, at, at, at one point I talk about how, you know, this isn't the end of Massachusetts. It's not the end of the United States. You know, it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. And I felt like that was kind of important. Cause I, I, my hope was that would make one, the stories maybe feel a little bit more realistic, but also maybe more poignant, more tragic, especially, you know, for the, for the characters who don't make it <laughs> through the book. Right. And then that's the thing is when it's going on, it does feel like one of those books and it does feel like the world is ending. And, and, and so I think that's something that adds to the postlude is, is that, that atmosphere. And, and look, I, I'm not, I, I'm trying to do this in a discussion of the writing of this book without um, talking about my own work, but I am a writer too. And, and I wrote, a, I, I wrote a book, Ring of Fire, that was nominated for the Splatterpunk Award. And I was trying to do kind of a similar thing with that book. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated the pace of Survivor Song because with Ring of Fire, I was trying to do kind of the end of the world in a more condensed way. And I wanted the pace to continue the whole way. So I felt a lot of right. kinship to Survivor Song when I was reading it and a little bit of jealousy <laughs> at just how um, tight it was. Did you have any specific influences for the pace? Because I, I know for myself, I was thinking a lot of 28 weeks later, not the first one, but the second one, right. hmm. the pace of that. It's funny, like this book, I think more than other ones, I felt like, I mean, clearly there are subconscious, um, inspirations that you take from you know and there were stuff that I I, I I know I wanted to reference to but I felt like more than the three previous novels that I'd written I felt like I was sort of not on my own in a way but like I definitely felt like out of my comfort level like I wasn't riffing on specific <laughs> movies other than just a specific zombie sort of genre I felt like I was more just riffing on like 
you know, this history, this, you know, all the comics, all the books, all the movies that, you know, so many people, I'd say more than any other trope at this point that people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of my previous novels were like, we're, we're using specific jumping off points. So um, I think that made it like really difficult in the, especially in the beginning when I was relying on some, you know, the medical research, particularly like, uh, you know, what, what a hospital's response would be and stuff like that. Again, that was sort of out of my comfort zone. I hate doing research. <laughs> I'm just not comfortable doing it. Like, you know, I don't have an English degree. I was never really taught like, or I'm sure, I mean, I was taught how to research, but I, I certainly didn't do it really in college. I mean, I was a math major. So, I mean, just the, I don't have like the repetition of researching something and be able to put it, you know, into a, into a work, like in an academic sort of way. So anyway, I mean, that's a, a long way of saying, um, I mean, there were specific, like the, yeah, I don't know where the pace, yeah. So I'm gonna say, I'm not sure where the pace came from necessarily. Um, I mean, I do really like both 20 uh, days later, even that one, I feel like, even though it's, I feel like that one's sort of like, a, you know, with the exception of maybe the very ending is it feels like it happens over like, in my memory, it feels like it happens over a very short time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like the farmhouse at the end, like I want, I tried to describe that sort of like the white farmhouse in um, Night of the Living Dead, you know, just like little things like that. But um, I, I, don't, I didn't really have like a specific zombie movie or, or apocalyptic movie in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unlike where uh, Cabin at the End of the World was very much ripping on the home invasion thing, and those kind of have a set structure with, you know, how the stories kind of unfold, like somebody has to show up, has to invade the house, that kind of right. thing. And, and, and um, which, by the way, um, I loved Cabin at the End of the World. Um, and Thank you. I... I uh, I, I really like how you played with the conventions in, in, in that one. And, and um, I think this one, uh, Survivor Song, whereas I, I know with like Head Full of Ghosts, you're playing with the, with the exorcism conventions to a degree. But I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons why you have so many people like dying to know whether she was really possessed or not and, and <laughs> repeatedly asking you, no matter how many times you've told them, you're not going to tell them, <laughs> right? Um, that's something that kind of separates it, right? In the uh, kind of supernatural um, aspects of Cabin at the End of the World kind of give that a different feel. And I think definitely with Survivor Song, which what gives this like kind of an original feel is the ticking clock. And so much of the novel is based on the friendship between um, Rams and and, and Natalie. And, and I do want to unpack that a little bit more later, but but what I, but what I think really makes this this book um, different is, is the ticking clock. And it seems to me, from looking at the acknowledgement, that that ticking clock is 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 the germ of the idea, right? Like the yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, it started with like I don't know. I mean, it's weird to say like the novel sort of started a little bit with my own sort of professional desperation because it was like 13 months to the day the a book was due to my publisher. And I didn't, I hadn't started a book yet mm-hmm. for like a few, I was for the prior, like five or six months, I had finished up a novella for growing things. And I had this idea for another novel, but I just kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And by the time July, 2018 rolled around, I was like, ah, that supposed idea that I had, um, I wouldn't, I don't have enough time to do that. So I needed something else. (laughs) And I was sitting, like I was on my first ever trip to England at the time and I was sitting on a train, which is partly why I ended up involving England in in the story as to sort sort of honor (laughs) where the idea of the book started. Um, And I was just in my notebook. And so I I sort of wrote down, like I was trying to write down all the horror tropes thinking, okay, is there, like I've done with a couple of the previous books, what can I mess with? And I wrote down zombie. Like everybody, I kind of went, ah, ah. But then, I don't know, I just wrote down like, oh, pregnant zombie. I feel like we've seen, we, I know I've seen movies where a zombie's pregnant and it's like a zombie baby that comes out or, you know, like the last act of the mother is to give birth to a, a baby. It's like, oh, how could you, could you have someone who is a zombie, like fully turned zombie, but give birth to a pregnant baby? It was just like, I don't know, a weird question you ask yourself. And then for some reason, it was like, oh, what, 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 what I knew about rabies is like, oh, if, if it was like a rabies virus, 
like maybe it's possible for someone who has succumbed to rabies to, to give birth and that that's how it sort of just unfolded from there um yeah so no i feel like in a lot of ways you keep saying the ticking clock which i, I like uh and so i think cabin and, and survivor song really sort of fit together at least in my head mm -hmm. um because i feel like even though there was there was a ticking clock in, in cabin as well like you know um you know, they sort of had a timeline, you know, they only had a few chances, supposedly, according to the invaders, mm -hmm. as you know, how many times they could refuse to sacrifice, you know, someone in the family. Um, you know, in my head, I thought of Survivor Song as, oh, this is about the horror and the hope uh, of choosing to go on, you know, when everything's awful. And then I felt like Survivor Song was sort of like the next step. Okay, you, you've decided you're going to try to survive. Like, what does that look like? <laughs> Yeah, so in a way, do? that ticking clock was going on in your life, too, as far as, like, you were starting later than you usually do on a bus. Yeah, no, for sure. That probably, actually, I thought... probably added to the pace, too, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Little bit. Well, and no, it's no. because you had uh, research help with uh, your sister as a nurse, right? Is that? Yes. Or, yep. Yeah, and you were able to ask those questions. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, it's weird because it's funny that you say you don't like the research because one of the things I thought was really good about the book was how well researched it felt. You can't really tell this kind of story without doing the research. You kind of right. have to do these things, right? And I know for Ring of Fire, like one of the things I, I had I had a whole list. I made a list at the beginning. Like these are the different topics I have to research before I can write uh -huh. it. Did you do that? Did you make a list of of where you need to go or did you do it as as you were going i typically do it as i'm going like just so i feel like i'm making headway um then i would slow down when i needed to although you know because i mean the opening the opening i shouldn't say chapter but the but the prologue like you don't really need a ton of you know i guess a little research went into it but that was more you know i could work on that and then i interviewed my sister you know and she got me like her hospital's emergency plan and stuff like that um, yeah, so I was doing that as we went. I, I sort of was fortunate that I had happened to read um, a book called Rabbit, Rabid, A Cultural History of, I forget the rest of the subtitle. I'd happened to read that a few years earlier in audio form while I was walking my dog, which is sort of funny. <laughs> Listening to rabies while you're walking your dog. You know, so I bought the hard copy of that to, to reread it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's just so much, there's a wealth of rabies information online as well which made it easier sort of like to dip in and dip out. Um, so the <laughs> And the way the rabies travels through the body, like where it has to move up to the brain is, is very key to the story. And one of the reasons why it kind of drove it. So you were locked in with, with the rabies then, I, I take it from the beginning, like that was, that was gonna be the one that did it, right? Yeah, cause I mean, uh, that had stuck with me when I, I when I listened to the audio that, oh, here's this weird disease that's not in the blood, um, you know, it attaches directly to the nerve and passes to the brain. So like, even like when I first had the idea, I was like, oh, if a woman was rabid, I mean, it's not in the blood, it goes to the nerves that shed through saliva, like, you know, I, maybe, 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 you know, the kid, you know, uh, in the uterus would be uninfected, like, and I, you know, in my research, I could not find any cases of someone who was actually succumbed to the virus, or someone who was actually infected uh, being pregnant. There, there was research about how pregnant women who got the vaccine, it was safe for the fetus to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of felt like the science, uh, I was okay-ish. <laughs> Before all science, I will say the, maybe the funniest bit of research, and one of the last ones I did, I, I kept putting it off was... <laughs> I emailed my, my children's pediatrician to ask, hey, have you ever, you know, I have some questions for this book I'm, I'm working on. You know, have you ever performed a C-section? Like, you know, did you see it when, did you help like when you were in med school? You know, some, some stuff like that. You know, I had to tell him why <laughs> I was asking him that question, but he was, uh, he was helpful. <laughs> well, and I had a really funny experience when I was researching Ring of Fire where, um, I, it's a long story, but I was involved with this activist campaign to keep the chargers in town through called Save Our Bolts. And, I, and so I got contacts at the mayor's office because I was going in there for those reasons. And I would stick around and talk to my contact at the mayor's office and say, hey, hey can, can you tell me about your disaster plans? Can you do all this? 
And one of the things that was really funny is he put me in charge of the guy at the water board who's in charge of um, thinking out disasters <laughs> for oh. the county. And so I had this, and I found out when I got a hold of him that he was a huge horror reader. And so, but he was like very frightening to talk to because he would say, <laughs> every time I'd say, yeah. well, you know, how about this? terrible thing happening and he'd say oh you think that's bad <laughs> here's this awesome. and like that's how i found out that all the water in san diego county comes through one pipe which um was kind of frightening to me um yeah. did you have in your research what's one of the funny the 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 did you have any of those moments where you're like i can't use this but here's this really frightening thing i learned <laughs> um no, I didn't stumble upon any of those, you know, terrifying nuggets. Probably better, better for my mental health. Partly because it was so like, I don't know, I, I didn't go into any rabbit holes where I didn't, you know, need to, I didn't really need to go or I wasn't going to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I think with, with my book, what I did for the research is I spent, I delayed the book and spent a couple of years researching it while I was writing other things. Oh, wow. I didn't have anybody asking me for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right at the time. So I had the time to like where I dig into one issue here and there for a little while. And then I'd say like, oh, I got to learn about the firefighters for a little bit. And um, and, and so that was one kind of nice fortunate thing of not kind of having a deadline. Yeah. Um, but you had but you knew and this was good is you knew you had a home for it <laughs> for the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And um, so let's get into the characters because um unless there's anything else on research that um did research change any of the pacing or anything like that on it or or uh no i mean i mean i had to take you know i was it's not i had to take rabies as, um and, and mess with its rate of or how quickly someone would become infected obviously like real rabies would take weeks sometimes months for it to travel from the bite site to the brain you know so obviously I made it extra virulent and, and, and moved up that time. So, you know, I did mess with the virus a little bit, you know, and, and the people who succumb to it are, are more aggressive and more bitey <laughs> than, than people who succumb to, to rabies. For Although I will tell you actually, okay, uh, this is, you know, a bizarre symptom for, for, for males, for men who, who succumb to rabies is that, um, they sort of become hypersexual slash they'll just like ejaculate <laughs> like 40, 50 times a day, like uncontrollably. Um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's, and it's described as like being like, sort of like a very uncomfortable, very painful sort of thing. Um, so I, you know, I didn't want to put that into the book, but like in, in the, in the book that I read from research and rabbit, they, they spent quite a bit talking about that. Oh, yikes. Yeah. That, that sounds like something on, well, and, and thankfully, the majority of your characters are women in this book. So, like, right. <laughs> you didn't have to deal with that with Natalie getting no. infected. And um, so um, the book starts with the with the prelude. Y you jump right in with um, the attack and get that right, get that going right away. So from the very beginning of the book, Natalie's infected. Was that always the, the, the format that you were going to have, like, you know, starting with her with, with that attack? Because that, that seemed like the smart choice to me. Like, it yeah. just gets it going. And then the whole time that the clock is ticking, you start the book with, like, hitting the, the, the stopwatch to go, right? No, absolutely. Like, what they call it movies, I guess, a cold open. Uh, I wasn't necessarily thinking of movies, but I also didn't want to start with, like, Zombie Zero, you know, like, the first... You know, again, even though that's quite effective in so many movies, you know, in particular, you know, 28 days later, you know, I, I knew like I wanted to just drop people like in the middle of this is happening. And here's four to six hours, you know, during the middle of, you know, this horrible thing that's happening in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and um, because you're taking it, I know I talked about this in my review of the book. There's, you know, and I use War of the Worlds as an example. There's the, there's the George Powell War of the Worlds that has generals and the global view. And then mm -hmm. there's the Spielberg version, which is just Tom Cruise's family. And um, I guess the Stephen King comparison is the stand versus sell, right? Um, it, and, and I think 
um, having that narrow focus in some ways um, because you don't really know what else is happening to everyone else um, gives it a, a real um, an error because because really Natalie and Rams don't really know how widespread it is they they kind of discover that as, as we're reading right and, and and I think that 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 really lends well to like how the story unfolds um, so let's talk about Natalie and Rams um, uh, is it, it's pronounced Romola, right? Or? Yes, Romola, yeah. Romola, okay. And it's funny because we talked about in our, uh, in our um, audio discussion about it the, uh, that I had with Kirk Jones and uh, Daniel Velasti is um, that Daniel and I are both Doctor Who fans and we pictured the woman who's the companion on this season of Doctor Who in, <laughs> in her role because um, of the Indian British connection and we just and we kind of laughed about it because we were like both kind of saw her uh in this role but i think um giving her the you said that the british thing was like a tip of the hat to your to being in england right and and i think that that's cool because i think the other thing that it does is is it um gives her like well especially now that we're seeing that there is Right now, unfortunately, in 2002, and especially with every, or 2010, uh, 2020, <laughs> sorry, I, I wish it was 2002 sometimes. In 2020, um, like the issues of how a person of color is treated versus a white person in very tiny ways kind of um, makes a <laughs> question when, when Rams is, is going through the situation when she's having to show her ID and, and, and all those things. Um, like it, it's in the back of my head. And when the militias show up, I'm, I, I'm thinking a, a little bit of extra worry for her. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what I liked is, is that wasn't a huge part of it, but it was just subtly there. And I, and I, and I appreciated that and her character, but um, that just tell me like why two, two female friends, because it is such a huge part of this novel. Um, well, one, like it ended up becoming, I wanted it to be about friendship as, as a purposeful break from the three previous novels, which really focused on, you know, parents, um, and families, parents with children, or, you know, in one case it was a single parent. Um, you know, even though it, it's a pregnant woman, it's not quite a, a family yet. And her husband dies in the first you know 20 pages, her husband, Paul, no, uh, no intentional relation to me <laughs> or, uh, um, yeah, so I knew uh, I wanted it to be sort of, I guess, my friendship novel, or I should say a friendship novel. Um, you know, and, and part of, you know, rem part of Ramola's being there was one, like, you know, in the Boston area, mm -hmm. you know, we're, I don't know, like, what the reputation is around the rest of the country, but at least around here, we're always like, oh, the best hospitals are in Boston, or, you know, we, we have some really good hospitals in this area. Um, and with Ramola's characters, like, well, you know, most of the doctors that I see that I've gone to are all BIPOC, you know, so I, I felt like I had to represent that. Um, so it was part of, you know, where Ramola came from. It's just, you know, this is, this is what, this is who doctors are in Boston. There are many from, you know, from other countries. There are many, as I just said, BIPOC. Um, some of it was a little bit of a nod to my sister. My sister, one of her good friends at school, her first name was Ramola. <laughs> Um, and it's sort of a little in-joke with my sister. Ramola is a really outgoing, you know, especially in college, like vivacious personality. And I sort of flipped the personalities a little bit, <laughs> you know, gave Natalie a lot of, you know, because Natalie's really sort of strong-willed and uh, say-anything kind of person. Ramola's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more, I don't want to say responsible, but she's, you know, she certainly takes a responsibility role in the novel, you know, because she obviously is trying to shepherd her friend uh through this you know terrible landscape to try to get her help so i mean like in a lot of this i sort of like discovered on the way like that that sort of if writing is fun at all ever <laughs> is you know starting with just really loose sort of like guidelines for who these people are and letting them sort of determine themselves you know through what they say in the book and through their actions and through their decisions right and and one of the cool things about how they 
work as a as a group of friends is that they have to rely on each other's strengths throughout throughout the novel and it's a a powerful and subtle part of 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 the book of the book is is how um rams has to like use natalie's strengths and vice versa and they they can't they, they really depend on each other and um i think one of the cool things too is is that um because their friendship goes back to college and they're both adults now is that whole kind of thing where you get the feeling with ramallah that she um in the beginning feels very put upon like you know like oh i gotta i, I gotta i gotta help natalie and here we go again and, and and here's this kind of thing but she you know through the process of 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 like trying to help her and save her she becomes more c committed to um helping her her baby be born and and get through this and that's also with a push and pull of of, of the um first person narrative that you get with the uh, recordings that natalie's making for for her child that that um and and so was that always a part of the structure? Was that something you planned, or is that something that just came up while you were writing? Um, yeah, no, I definitely. Well, one, I knew I didn't want to be first person or third person in Natalie's head for a long time because I didn't want to be telling the reader what it felt like to be an eight and a half month pregnant woman, since I, you know, am neither or never will be. So, but I still wanted to get her voice into the book somehow. So now right sort of whatever the quote unquote beginning was like when I was taking notes, um, you know, I knew that there was going to be, she, Oh, she's going to leave, you know, sporadic or record sporadic uh, messages for her unborn child. Um, you know, cause in those messages, she's not talking about what it feels like to be pregnant there. You know, I could sort of tap into my own parental anxieties and fears. Uh, let that work for me a little bit. Um, you know, and I, I also thought it was important, uh, you know, and this was actually my friend Nadia Balkan helped me with this. We discussed, while I was in the middle of writing the book, you know, we talked about one of the tropes of science fiction, horror stories, apocalyptic ones where, oh, you know, we have to save the pregnant woman because she's going to, you know, either metaphorically or literally, you know, help repopulate the world. That's like her sole role. Um you know, and I wanted, I, I tried to make sure that Natalie was rebelling against that idea when, you know, she openly talks about like, oh, I told my husband, no, you have to save me first. Mm. Um, you know, I thought, I, w I feel like that's a very honest reaction for, for just about any parent to have. Like, and I feel like it's pretty rare. I feel like that you see some of the more, I want to say darker thoughts that you have as a parent, but maybe some of the more less sort of polite like you don't hear people talking about openly those kind of emotions that you have as a parent mm. um yeah one of the more powerful moments is when rams lies and uh on the bus and i i i've been kicking myself ever since we finished <laughs> recording the um the panel discussion about it that i never brought up this chapter <laughs> because <laughs> um it was uh, my, it was one of my favorite scenes of the book is when she lies to get them onto the bus and says that they're not that she's not infected, and they basically get abandoned because they figure it out. And I think it's one of the tensest moments. It's one of the most powerful moments. Now, uh, one of the biggest things that happened for you in this book, um, which I, is that uh, Stephen King tweeted out about <laughs> this book and compared you to Richard Matheson, which um uh is you know that's pretty freaking cool paul oh yeah no very amazingly cool absolutely <laughs> and to me one of the scenes that really nailed home the the richard matheson comparison was um uh those last moments before she realizes she's caught right um because what matheson was so good at was these little moments where you know it's coming and you can't get away from it and just the the you know i think why he made the comparison to matheson was that mm. the whole book is filled with these moments but for me the one that really struck me was was this moment of lying on, on the bus was that scene as important to you <laughs> writing it was it a, a turning point in the book or was it just another step in the ladder um, um 
No, that, I, I spent a lot of time on sort of that, on that section, you know, trying to get it right or, you know, what I thought was right. Um, no, and I thought that was, you know, for Ramola, I, she definitely got, I feel like the hardest questions <laughs> to, to confront, you know, that the novel poses really the whole time. I mean, uh, poor Ramola was put through the ringer. Um, and you're right. And she ultimately, she, you know, she chooses, it's been funny to see some different people's reaction to it. Um, you know, and she chooses to to place those people on the bus in danger. Like it, that's, it, you know, is you know, that's immoral. How immoral is it? I don't know. Like, you know, if, if we're put in that situation, um, you know, how are you going to react if it's a loved one? Are you going to try to get, you know, we could extrapolate just what we went through in 2020. Like if you're trying to get someone on a plane, mm. you know, and like you think they might have a little bit of cough, you're just going to be like, Hey, just don't cough and get on the plane and get home. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's like maybe, you know, that's There's definitely immoral. You're putting, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, we, it's, it's those kind of questions. You know, I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote it, but like in, in retrospect, um, no, I just felt terrible. And thank you for saying that. Yeah, I know. Uh, I remember thinking what we're, well, trying to think what Ramola would think. Like she knows, I mean, she knows through most of that scene that she's going to get caught in the lie. And she's just hoping that it's, that they get way, further, it's way further down the line yeah. than, you know, you know, later rather than sooner. Um, and that's just a horrible, like, powerless, helpless feeling. So I think, you know, hopefully, well, not hopefully, but I think that most of us can, you know, relate to or identify with, you know, in times of crises, that feeling of powerlessness. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, too, that um, <laughs> as Matheson was, made it so visual, you know, um, that I, I, I had the thought when I was reading that scene that Matheson would have made sure that we saw each mile... <laughs> ticker <laughs> like going, going towards there um and uh but th the fact of the matter is i was thinking about that because it was such a matheson moment um and uh so like my brain went to like how would matheson dial this to 11 so cool. <laughs> at that point <laughs> and um and so uh but i think that that comparison uh that that stephen king made towards with this book has to do with, um, and and um, I saw Matheson at the Stoker Awards one year, and he was talking about how he always viewed suspense as rungs in a ladder, mm. and how he was putting different rungs in the ladder for for the story, and that always stuck with me. And what I loved about Survivor Song, in many ways, is that there's a lot of different rungs of the ladder that um, as a reader, we're climbing along with the characters. And, and, and um, I, I think that, that that adds to the pace. But that's why I think King made that comparison. And um, um, but yeah, that had, oh, to, thank you. that had to have felt really great. I know he's- Oh, absolutely. I know he's given props to Headful of Ghosts before too, but, um, and Cabin, right? Um, yeah, so. yeah, I'm very spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's really cool. And, 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 um, I think, uh, it, it, like, look, um, I, I'm, uh, tickled pink for you when I see that, like, <laughs> that makes me really excited as somebody Thank you. who loves your work, um, that you got that. Um, so now, um, uh, we talked a little bit about in our panel discussion about the chapter where the debate over whether it's zombie or not with, um, the two kids that they meet along the way. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Kirk Jones, author Kirk Jones, who was on our panel, like he said that 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 he, no, no, I think it was Daniel, the other one, Daniel Velasti, crime writer Daniel Velasti. He he said that he loved that chapter, and that um, you know he said that to him it was very important that that chapter happened because it was important to him that you can't skirt around the zombie thing without at right. least talking about it. And I'm sure that's how you felt about that chapter, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the initial roles was the guy, I, I, before I even wrote the book, I was like, okay, I think that I sort of had the general gist of the story. There was going to be the attack. They're going to go to the hospital. Then it becomes a road novel. While they're on the road, it's like, well, I felt like I almost need like a little bit of com a comedic relief and to have a couple of characters serve as proxies for the reader because you know, everyone's going to be comparing them to zombies. So I wanted to have like two self-styled zombie experts. Um, 
and that afforded me the opportunity to bring back a couple of characters from Disappearance of Devil's Rock. Um, you know, if you if you haven't read that novel, that's fine. You don't need to have yeah. read that novel uh, to to enjoy. Well, no, I didn't under, understand what yeah to understand what's happening in Survivor Song. So that was Josh and Luis's first role. But you know, as I got deeper into the book, I thought it was cool to have um, the two friendships to sort of juxtapose, right? So like we talked about Natalie and Ramola's. You know, there's a very adult relationship, you know, just based on the number of years that they've been friends. Mm. Um, You know, in those years, and relationships can be so unique that way, you know, know, obviously different than uh, familial relationships where, you know, it's a relationship by choice for most, or not by choice, by, by not by choosing for most people, right? You can't choose your, your sister or your brother or your mother or your father. Uh, Friends, you do get to choose. And Sometimes it's really intense at the beginning and then like you, you never see those people again, but there are some times that you have these friendships for life and it goes in ebbs and flows and how much, you know, and how often that you contact each other. Sometimes you're able to pick right back up. I mean, they're sort of complicated things and that's Natalie and Romola's relationship. So here's Josh and Luis, you know, they're in their what, like six, 17 ish years old, you know, so their friendship is really intense. Um, you know, it's still on the span of a timeline relatively new and it's, almost like you could see how Ramola and Natalie were or would have been at that age kind of thing. Um, so that, that was sort of the two roles. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, that, that really does serve to show the difference between a mature friendship and, and, and one that's still coming of age in that sense. Yeah. And, and then they become the perfect ones to be like, like, yo, dude, zombies. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I was lucky because the the zombie novel that I wrote was a satire, so I could just totally play with that. And and yeah. um, but I did I try my hand at a serious zombie novel. I've decided to to leave it in the trunk. Um, <laughs> and what I did with that one was just um, I had people refer to the Z word or don't mention the Z word. And mm-hmm. I I, th- I think you took the better approach as far as. Like, cause I think I was trying to stray away from it. And I think that by just heading it off in one chapter with one scene, that's, that's a good, almost comic relief, which this book definitely needed some, some a valve of, of really yeah. point um, was very important. And, and I think um, some writers might not realize that they have to do that, but in a book that's this tense, having a moment where, where the, where the readers can take a, take a breath and 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 kind of kind of laugh is is really important, um, and, and so that's something that I appreciated that you're doing there too. Well, thanks. So, yeah, I uh, mean, um, again, I, I thought it would be, you know, realistic that you know if something like this were to happen, like so many of us mm-hmm. who have, who have no experience with it would have no choice but to sort of at least look at it somewhat through the lens of what we know from pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I knew there was no avoiding it. Like, no, people would, would joke about zombies. I mean, I did it in the Facebook, you know, page right off, the, uh, you know, in the, in the intro, but I also thought it was equally important to, you know, given what the virus was in my story to have Ramola, like say, no, these are not zombies. These are people who are infected. You know, yes. they're not monsters. Um, you know, so I thought, you know, that again, her role in that, in that part was important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in some of these doorstop, pandemic books there would have been some subplot with a character that we would have spent 150 pages with learning about <laughs> how like they're just an infected person and and what's great is is that in the it, when 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 you're doing a fast-paced novel like this you get to kind of do it and um i almost think that that's in a way the best science fiction for example does world building in subtle moments that you almost don't notice and so what I appreciated about that was almost a sci-fi level of, of world building where it's, um, it's not harped on. It's not something that we talk about for a long time, but it's something that's done really quickly. And it serves two purposes. And that's one of the things that I appreciate as a writer is that you're serving two narrative purposes. You're, you're um, making, you're, you're, you're doing the world building and you're also doing that, that relief valve thing. So, so I appreciated that. Now, another thing that's kind of very subtle in the book, and I appreciate it also for its subtlety, was um, the attack coyotes that um, are kind of just there, um, and um, you don't overuse them, that they're, they're 
almost just like this could happen, <laughs> right? And this is a scary thing that, and that, but they're not like, you know, again, they're not a hundred pages of, of like, we've got to avoid the, the, the attack coyotes to get to the hospital, right? Right, right, right. And, and so why, so what was the thought? I, I think I know, but um, what was the thought in, in not making this um, a bigger subplot, you know, like, because, you know, some writers would probably have Rams and Natalie having to avoid the coyotes for 75 pages or <laughs> like having to outsmart them and trap right. them in the door or something, you know. You know, at, at some point, it's well, it's funny, like when I first wrote like the, yeah, because I still had to pitch my my publisher on it a little bit. So I wrote, mm -hmm. I wrote like a two to three page summary, like a really loose sort of half-ass summary. <laughs> that really only summarized like the first 100 pages, you know, in the hospital. And then I sort of like hand waved, oh, you know, this is going to happen. Something like this is going to happen in the rest of the book. I initially, I envisioned instead of a bus, like I wanted to try to get Natalie and Ramola onto a train and have like the train taking them out to the western part of the state or something. But it just, it wouldn't work. It, like it, I kept going back to, ah, oh, that really wouldn't happen in real life. Like it didn't seem realistic, like a horde of, you know, I was like, oh, why would the train stop? Like, is a horde of coyotes going to stop a train? I'm like, no, <laughs> that really wouldn't happen. Um, so, like, I sort of, like, picked, like, I knew they had to try to go to another hospital. So, I, you know, I just pecked at that until it became somewhat realistic to me. Um, you know, and I didn't want it to, to become, like, adventure -y feeling where it's like, oh, they're battling, like, you know, 10 10 coyotes. I mean, and that's actually sort of the part of the role of the interlude for me. Um, it ended up not being this way, but like I was initially going to write it as like, this might be all in one of their heads. Like he's over imagining like the scope of the battles. And I still think you can read it that way that, you know, this is from their point of view. They see themselves, or at least it's from, um, Luis's point of view because Josh has already succumbed to the virus pretty much like yeah, this is something him. be ambiguous at some point yeah this is you know this is them in their big heroic final battle right right um yeah so uh, that so I did get to do that in the interlude where it's like okay it's almost like the comic book superhero zombie battle with all these different animals um but try to write it in like in a storybook kind of manner so um yeah, so that part I felt like I was sort of, <laughs> you know, as far as like what did Ramola and Natalie have to go through, um, that I was sort of figuring out as I went, you know, just like chip by chip almost. Whatever mm -hmm. yeah. I mean by chip by chip, I guess I mean like knocking pieces. No one can see me holding my hand up and chiseling out things right now, but that's what I was doing. <laughs> right. Well, some will have the video because I, I will put this up on YouTube too. Okay. But, um, yeah, and so, you know, okay, so getting more towards the end here, um, once once they get to the farmhouse and, you know, was it always a decision to have uh, Rams on her own to do to do the C-section? Yeah. Yeah, because that, that would be the most terrifying aspect. Because even if she has the training and it's important that she is a doctor and she's seen how to do this, it's a whole other thing when you have to do it yourself and you're you're in that moment and that made right. um that made me a little sweaty just reading it not having to actually be there and and do it um and um so but the moments of natalie just finally succumbing to the disease and her having to to duct tape her up and and the screams, it made me think of, um, and I made the comparison, it's just because it's a movie I recently watched, but um, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie where he plays the pilot in the plane that gets hijacked. And the whole movie takes place in the cockpit. And it's a great uh, claustrophobic thriller. And part of the thing of the movie is the entire, like first half an hour, someone's banging on the door <laughs> nonstop. And I thought of that when I was, uh, because I was, I saw that movie as I was about two thirds the way through reading this book. And so when Natalie's screaming at the end and, and, and getting towards the moment where she has to do the C-section, I thought to myself how horrible it would be for Rams to not only have to do this operation, 
but it's her best friend screaming her guts out the whole time. And I was like, God, that would be horrendous to watch in a movie to, to hear it. I mean, like, but at the same time, it really added to the, like the sensory overload for me as the reader. Um, that, that idea of her screaming while she was having to take her phone and use the power on her phone. And by the way, that was a great moment, a really subtle world building moment where she realizes <laughs> that Natalie's phone has 30% on it and how short amount of time had passed that her phone would still have that much charge. A plus, Paul. Oh, thanks. A plus. Um, that was a moment where I was sitting reading the book, and if I had a hat on, I would have tipped it to you. Um, uh, just as a writer, reading these moments, like, yeah, like, I, I just, those little moments for me, those are Matheson moments. Uh, <laughs> thanks. That's, that's where you, where, um, the, where Uncle Steve, the master, it, uh, is picking up on it. But anyways, so in the C-section, um, you must have really thought about that sensory overload and the screaming. Like, that, that had to be really on your head when, when you were thinking about it, right? I mean, like, that's the tension of the whole thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that was, like, the thing I was like, oh, I'll worry about that when I get there, sort of, like, how much I wanted to show. Like, I, I didn't want to go into too much graphic detail as it was happening. You know, I, I do have... Ramola sort of mentally walked through what the steps of a C-section would be, but not as she's actually performing it. Um, you know, so that was, you know, I just putting it there would just make it, you know, I, I think just leaving it there was enough for the reader to not have to like, I don't know, I, I didn't feel like it would have been right to, to see necessarily like the full gore effect kind of thing. Um, well, and that's where the panel came into play because Daniel uh, read it on Kindle I read the hardcover mm. and Kurt right. listened on the audiobook. And so they had no idea until I picked it up and showed them over Zoom, like how you had had written it. So how much did you, your editor- Oh, so the Kindle, sorry to interrupt. So the Kindle didn't have spaces in between? It did, but not to the but, level to which the published one did. And there was no indication that that was happening in, in the audiobook, according to Kurt. Um, okay. And um, and I don't know how they would dramatize that if they would do like right. pauses. But what was funny is because um, when I'm showing them these pages, and for those who are, are watching on YouTube and not just listening, the large spaces between, for example, Ramallah paces at the foot of the bed, and then the quote, "Never, never leave me. I'll never leave you. Neither, you know, you know, all that stuff." There's long. And what you're doing, at least in my opinion as the reader, and I'm gonna take a second to <laughs> talk about the reader's experience here because we get to spoil this, is that um, I'm having to put that all in, in my head. And and look, it, it's funny because personally, as when I get to the end of the book and I think I know what's happening, sometimes I start doing pages a little faster. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's the thing that I do when I think I know what's happening. And what this did is it made me slow down because I'm thinking about, um, you know, okay, so on this page, for example, on page 285, it says, as Ramallah fin finishes the initial incision, Natalie's earlier groans and screams ring so clear in her head as to be happening now. There's a large space. The light in the room is terrible is the next line, right? And so I'm, I don't know if, I'm thinking of it as Ramallah is out of her body and she's not seeing it or I'm supposed to think about it, but I'm spending a lot of time here thinking <laughs> about what's happening in this space, but it's all in my, my mind. Yeah. You're leaving it up to me. And I just thought this was genius. I thought this was an excellent thing to do. So now on your end, as the writer, what are you thinking? What is your editor saying to you? And what is your publisher <laughs> I'm interested now. Yeah. I'll shut up for a while. Yeah. I just wanted to get- No, thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, mo mo I mean, just about all of what you said I was going for. So I'm, I'm glad it worked. Uh, what I ended up doing is that at one point in that last chapter before the, pre uh, before the postlude, you know, I started 
when I wrote it Microsoft Word, I was like, all right, I'm going to start increasing the spaces in between the paragraphs by one extra line. You know, so it started at the regular whatever spacing it was too, and then then things start slowly to expand in between the paragraphs and sometimes single sentences until obviously there's like, for the last one, there's a few pages worth. Um, I've always been fascinated by the use of like blank space or white page space in books, you know, if it's there for a reason. Um, you know, I think Mark Daniel Buski and House of Leaves is a case where he used it. Um, before I, this book was even a thing in my head, like I had thinking about the white space thing. I was like, oh, you know what? I would love to do, it would be kind of cool to do a book. And I never had an idea for it where the book was three different characters, like three different narrators, right? Character one, two, three. And the book is told through there. And then at some point I'd have one of the characters die, but I would still keep that person, that person section would appear once, but it would just be like a blank page or two. Cause I felt like, oh, that'd be like a cool way to, to like, I don't know, remind the reader that this character has gone and it's irrevocable. Like you see this empty space. So I, I guess I sort of used it a little bit. Like I, the first really big blank space appears with Natalie's last, last. recorded message to her, to her child because, and that's representing that she's gone. Like she's, she has succumbed to the virus at this point. Um, and so that at the, in that last chapter, I also wanted to sort of mirror, like Ramola sort of talking about how I'd like to try to, to try to get through what she's going to have to get through. She's using, like, she mentions her board. She imagines like the, the steps that she, she imagines her mind is like a whiteboard and she writes down the steps. I talk about how it gets messy. So sort of also trying to tie in which I don't know if it was that successful, uh, the comparison between the whiteboard of her mind and like the expanding um, parts in between. But mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, now, now, sometimes, now what, you know, sometimes what, sorry, go ahead, what were you saying? Now what happened when your editor read it? <laughs> yeah, she never complained once about it. She was like, you yeah. just have to be clear with the design, what you want, um, like, but she was fine with it. Um, yeah. And part of it was me being a little bit of a wise ass for <laughs> readers of previous books who didn't like the ambiguous endings. Like, it's like, oh, because I'm going to have the last line be, you know, she cries and then have a bunch of blank pages. And then people are like, oh, that son of a bitch. She's not telling us if the kid lives or not, like the fake and ambiguous ending. But obviously <laughs> the the postlude comes after. Right. Which to me, the she cries was not ambiguous it's like it's clear that she was born so um and and i i really well i guess yeah i guess you could it, it could it could be ramola crying it could be the kid crying yeah 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 okay i see what you're saying yeah and 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 yeah you were kind of being a smart ass there sure <laughs> and i appreciate that but yeah. the first loot in a lot of ways is 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 kind of well i mean you're showing that 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 Rams clearly adopts the kid and, and, and you're, you, you are giving a, an, an unambiguous ending, which, you know, well, look, it's funny because, you know, poor, uh, look, I'm, there's only so much I'm going to defend M. Night Shyamalan, but like, <laughs> you know, he got locked into the twist endings to the point that when he didn't do it, people were like trying to figure out the twists and then it's just like, no, he just wrote a movie with a bad ending and, you know, it's like, you know, and look, and I and I'm a defender of some of that. I think Unbreakable is a work of genius. So you know, I'm not. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, I'm not talking total smack, but but in a lot of ways too, I'm sure people were assuming you were going to do ambiguous. So you 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 did have to to think on that, and it's a good way to just say like, no, nope, you don't have to. You know, a couple books in, I'm telling you, you don't have to <laughs> wait for the <laughs> for the the ambiguous ending. They sometimes will have that. They sometimes will not. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that I would never like try to force one on. Like, I felt like the other three books, and I'd say Devil's Rock is probably less ambiguous than the other two, at least in terms of the ending. Um, you know, to me, those endings are the endings of the book. There's a, you know, they fit thematically. They're there for a reason. You know, the cabinet at the end of the world is about the choice that, you know, the, the two men make. You know, it doesn't really matter to me if the world ends or not that the story is about the choice when a head full of ghosts, you know, the whole light the whole, to me, the horror is the ambiguity that we'll never know. Like, and, and to me, how that parallels our real life. So, you know, this story did not call for 
ambiguity. So I wasn't going to try to force it in. Mm -hmm. um, so like I would say with, with the postlude though, when I first wrote the, when I wrote the book, you know, and finished the first draft in August of 2019, I thought it was sort of a, I thought the postlude was sort of like a sneaky, not over the top, but kind of horrific. Like, cause for, for Romola, yeah, she survives, but her life isn't really what she wants it to be. I mean, she talks about how she didn't want to move back to England. You know, she imagined like traveling by herself. It was like a goal of her life. Um, and, you know, here she is, you know, forever changed. Like she's not a doctor anymore. Um, you know, I sort of leave that up to the reader if it's her choice or, if, you know, or she couldn't go back because of sort of the breach of, of quarantine protocols. Um, so like when I first wrote, like this is definitely not a happy ending for Romola. No. Um, yeah, I mean, for the, obviously the kid, Lily lives, but I, <laughs> I would say since the book has come out and most people have read it in 2020, you know, the, the postlude is much more of a happy ending or it's, it's much, it reads happier now to me than it did pre COVID life. Well, look, and, and I'm, I come from the perspective of an intentionally child a childless person who, mm -hmm. who made that decision so it's funny because when i realized what the book was about i you know it's it's really funny and this this plays into my reaction to the postlude is that um i was like i'm not so sure if the whole like i've got to help this baby being born is going to affect me as much as it would some other people yeah <laughs> um and you know, I, you know, it's funny because I've had to write parents before and, uh, and, and as a childless person, I've, I've made sure to try and talk to as many parents about what that feels like. So mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, because as writers, we have to empathize with people that we don't right. know. It's funny because I've talked many times before about how being a writer or, or, like actually taking writing seriously has made me a more empathetic person because I'm always thinking about, how, I'm trying to think about how people feel about things, even if I don't agree with it or if it's not, right. not me. Right. And so it was interesting because um, I think as a person who is not like, you know, I'm a teacher and I like kids to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. But the ending was not the happy ending for me because I did see the whole like, well, right. I, my first reaction was, wow, she's got to be a parent now. And she didn't. She didn't want to be. Yeah. Right. So I did see that and I did not necessarily see it as the happy ending of like, it's, it's happy in the sense that she was able to save the child's life, but now she feels this commitment to Natalie long after she's gone and she has to, you know, and, and, so I, I did see that. And so I do think it's interesting because I think what you set up with the postlude is, is that not everyone's going to see it the same way. So there is still some ambiguity in it hmm. in the sense that not everyone's going to see it the same way because, right. you know, definitely I think the difference between a person who's, you know, all about kids and the, and the people who are not are going to, are going to read it differently. Right. And, 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 um, so yeah, I had a different reaction to it, but that, that's not to say, you know, and look, and I've had this too, because there's some people like when, when, when you're, when you're an intentionally childless person, sometimes people take it personally, <laughs> you know, and they're like, and I, I'm not judging. Because you're, because you're clearly smarter than they are. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. I'm not yeah. judging other, you know, there's just any other people, but I, yeah. you know, my, my personal reaction is, to that ending is very different. And I think that, 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 that is going to make it different. And it was funny because the two other people that were on the panel with me, Kirk and, and Daniel are both parents. So right. when we discussed it, it was different between the three of us on, hmm. on how, and it was funny because Daniel had the, the comment. He's like, well, I only like my kid, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> You know, kind yeah. of funny reaction to it, and I, you know, so, but I do think that that, that the difference in how someone reads the end of this book is going to come in mm. their perception, and I think that's true of any good book. And, uh, but you know, um, and, and then one last thing that I want to kind of get to is the the 
the layout of the book is is really cool um and it has a really cool design where the the um post the prelude the interlude and the postlude look different and have kind of uh, uh they have a different page color and right like cool old english design like um in the in the titles and um and it gives gives the book a a really produced feel to it um that had to be really cool for you to see like how they laid out the book did you did you were you was that something that you requested or is that something that they brought to you well i requested like a little to make it to make those three sections look a little different but they took the ball and ran with it and i was very happy with with what they did you know with uh with the uh, prelude, I have to stop and think every time. <laughs> the prelude, the interlude, the postlude. You know, I wanted a different font. I wanted, I told them it was like, yeah, like a, a quote unquote storybook font. You know, just to still, to continue to mess with the line that this isn't a fairy tale, it's a song. Mm. And then like, and then reference fairy tales all throughout the book. I, just kind of being a smart ass in some ways. Um, you know, so I wanted those three to look, you know, and, and they were maybe written a little bit in a storybook, a more storybook kind of way. Uh, a more like narrative, a more authorial, intrusive narrator. That's almost like third person omniscient, not quite in those three sections. So again, I just said, I wanted like these block paragraphs. I wanted a different font. Um, but you know, then the design team came back with, you know, with how the pages looked and I loved it. Mm, yeah, it looks, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing looking book. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, I'm very lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And, um, and, so and that whole like it's a song not a fairy tale that's where the title comes from there isn't a specific reference to any to and anything else that that's hidden because i know like head full of ghosts comes from a bad religion song and, yeah but, well um by the way worked on hooking me because the first time i ever noticed the work was at curious galaxies i was walking and i saw the title and said hey that's from a bad religion song and then picked it up and then uh my friend who was with me was like oh yeah um there's a ton of buzz about that book and <laughs> oh that's so cool <laughs> it, it, um it was bad religion that hooked me the first time yeah oh i mean i mean i'm a big music geek i, I love music you know you, you know particularly punk and you know some metal i mean i i'm kind of like bounce all over the place but those tend to be my favorites mm -hmm. um so like you know the pr uh, prelude <laughs> postlude those are like parts of names of songs and at the when i first wrote the book i was going to try to go overboard with it and name like all the chapters like oh this is the first verse and that didn't really work but i kept the interlude postlude stuff um but just in terms of the feel like the shortened timeline like you know particularly you know punk songs are usually three minutes and under you know so i wanted to try to make the book feel like this fast intense sort of experience um you know and have it feel you know exciting but also sort of melancholic which is a lot of my favorite songs sort of are um but at the same time, still like referenced uh, fairy tales all throughout the book. Like when the zombie, when, when people succumb to the rabies virus, when they turn, you know, they say gibberish, but what they say are actually sort of garbled lines from a host of different Grimm's fairy tales. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and the, the titles to the postlude, uh, interlude and prelude are from uh, Grimm's fairy tales as well. So that's sort of like sprinkled in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's really cool, neat uh, details. And you're a big Husker Du fan, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, that new Bob Mould song is great. The, oh yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to the full album. <laughs> just wanted to just put that out there. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, he really, um, he's doing 2020 right uh, with that song. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, I think when you were in San Diego, we talked briefly about Husker Du. It might have been. Um, I don't remember why, but I think that's where um, my memory comes to. Mm. But anyways, um, yeah, so uh, I think that's, uh, I think we covered the book pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you know what's cool is um, I usually write a lot of notes, and I thought I was going to be fine without notes because the book was uh, really fresh, fresh in my head. And uh, I did the panel without notes and I was really mad that I, uh, missed the, um, the, uh, scene with the, with the bus. And so I'm glad we got to that. 
because to me that right. definitely one of the, one of the best moments in the book and 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 kind of a hinge hinge moment and uh, and I know your your hard work on uh, uh, Paul Bear's Club which uh, that's the title right correct yes yes yep and um, yeah that uh, sounds really great sounds like it's kind of uh, maybe you're playing with the coming of age tropes maybe. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, it's, it's been a challenge early because the last two books have really been in such a like a compressed timeline. And this is, you know, this book is really going to span some decades. Like I've gotten bogged down by like, oh, I'm telling this like in real time. I need to, <laughs> you know, some things need to be told in real time. I need to spread it out. So, mm. um, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't, it's, it sounds to me, I only know what you told Jeremy on the, um, and the Powell's interview, and it sounded to me it had a real Robert McCann, early Robert McCammon feel sound to it. Uh, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, he definitely starts with the high schooler in 1988/89, um, and actually, there's quite a few explicit <laughs> references to uh, Who's Could Do. In fact, each chapter title is a Who's Could Do song title, and, okay. and there's a reason a reason for it. So, well, hopefully, uh, we'll hopefully. Uh, pretty soon to follow up the Stephen King tweet, we'll get a Bob Mould tweet that he read Survivor Song. Oh man, that's like the, that's my holy grail. <laughs> uh, but it's okay if it doesn't happen. I will say briefly as a, an inebriated like 21 or 22 year old, myself and a few friends, you know, saw Bob after one of his shows. Mm-hmm. And Bob sort of famously doesn't like, doesn't really do autographs. It's just like a scribble. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I keep wanting to get rid of us because we asked him to come out for pizza and he didn't want to. But basically, he, he uh, all I had on me for a piece of paper in my wallet, because this was 1992 or three or whatever it was, this is what you carried around with you back then, was my social security card. So the front of my social security card has Bob Mould scribble on it. <laughs> I have a friend whose uh, outgoing phone message is um, Billy Bragg. He recorded Billy oh. Bragg saying, uh, Tom's out saving the world. And so Tom's like, I'm never changing. <laughs> like, That's I'm- awesome. <laughs> The, he uh, very smartly got him to record it, but um, I had the experience of, um, for me, as being the, the strange kid, I got to meet Ian McKay. Oh, wow. And um, I, had, uh, I had written a report in school about Discord records and independent record labels, and I'm very embarrassed now as an adult that I gave <laughs> a copy of it, and uh, I, I can't imagine how ridiculous it looked <laughs> to him, but you know, he had those moments, and yeah, um, it's uh, it's just one of those things. Well, Paul, it was really great talking to you about Survivor Song. I really love this book. Um, Thank you, David. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, what I'm hoping people will get out of this is 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 uh, um, you know a little kind of commentary track, almost like feel to to um, your experience in writing this, and 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 I think there's a lot that writers can learn from from uh, the lessons that you figured out uh, and giving us this great book. Um, Cause you know, each, each new book is a, is a journey and, um, and uh, you got to write it and we got to read it. <laughs> I, uh, I love the experience. So. Uh, well, thank, thank you. you. It's very kind. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Thank you. It was very kind. And you know, it was a lot of fun to get to talk about spoilers and just talk about the book. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, and um, this will be a two-parter, so hopefully uh, people will get um, get their fill of Survivor Song and get uh, excited for the next one. Um, and uh, I just really appreciate your time. So thanks for joining us on um, Postcards from a Dying World. Thank you.